There is an announcement I forgot to tell Tabitha about. So I'll start off with that. You may have seen all those plants out there in the fellowship hall. Those are all Michigan native species flowers, and we're going to plant them along the back there. You may be wondering why the back is all yellow and destroyed, and that's because we're going to plant a bunch of native species back there. We got a grant through the National Wildlife Federation and Asable Trails, and we were able to get double that amount. There's more coming. Anyway, we want to make it look good. We want to keep it native, so that's nice for our environment. We need some helpers. June 3rd is our planned date for that. Um, we're looking at weather, though, because if we're looking at some more frost, and we're talking about 1,500 square feet back there. So if, we're, it's gonna, if it's looking frosty this week, we may not do this. But if that's something that interests you, getting some of those plants in the ground, we would appreciate your help on June 3rd. We don't have exact times yet. Again, it's going to be based on heat. But yes, Tabitha said she'll put it on the remind. So, so that's what all those plants are doing out there. Hopefully those are going to go out there this week. And then in a couple of years that will look amazing. It will attract lots of pollinators and butterflies. So, okay. So I'm continuing on the spiritual, uh, the spiritual warfare theme. We're talking about, our first one was just talking about uh, the forces of darkness, what we saw when we went through the Gospel of Mark and into the epistles. And then we traced, tried to trace some stuff back to the Old Testament to get a grip on what the Old Testament was saying about that stuff. And we were really just looking at what the passages said. And then we had a lot of questions. And among our questions were these topics. Um, the use of Shadim, the, the giants and shades, what's that about? Uh, the idea of territorial spirits, unclean slash impure spirits, uh, principalities and powers, authorities, dominions, thrones, rulers. Those are the different, uh, different titles that they've given some of the, the dark forces that rule over certain areas in the New Testament. Um, the idea of other people worshiping other gods, um, the difference in demons between some of the demons and spirits. For example, when Jesus said, well, this one's only coming out with prayer and fasting. Why did he say that? Is there anything there for us to grasp? Um, legal dominions. Uh, we talked about idols just briefly, and we were wondering about the devil and his angels that it refers to. Um, so today we're going to try to tackle... Giants and shades and unclean spirits and get those off of our list. Um, but it's going to feel like an episode of Ancient Aliens a little bit today. Um, our list of questions are strange. This guy always likes to say aliens. I'm here to say not aliens. So what's really interesting, while we're on this, I guess, there's 16 seasons of Ancient Aliens now, which is quite a bit for a show. Um, and when you think about the fact that there's 16 seasons, that means that people are eating this stuff up, which means there is a hunger for this stuff. And church, you have an answer for most of these weird things. We don't need some kind of pie-in-the-sky weird New Age answers for this. There are people that are led astray, and I'm not saying don't watch Ancient Aliens. It, it can be fun. It's pseudoscience. People know that. 
But some of the stuff that they're asking are real questions. Now, where they go with it? But they're real questions, and they're questions people have, and they're questions that scientists still try to answer and historians try to answer. But I'm here to say some of it we can answer right in the Bible, and it's not aliens. So that's why I threw him in. I just, I like that meme too. I love his hair. Um, so to review our last episode of Ancient Aliens two weeks ago, um, the Bible references something called the Divine Council. This council is made up of spiritual beings. We could determine that from Scripture. Uh, the beings are referred to at different places as sons of God. At the Babel event, God gave the nations over to the sons of God to look after, after the humans had once again rejected him and his plan. Eventually, these rulers become corrupt, and they sought worship for themselves. This is where we get powers and principalities and thrones and dominions. Um, and this led to their, the origin of idolatry. This is when we first start reading about the idea of idols and other god worship in the Bible. Um, so that kind of took care of our territorial spirits, the dominions part. Um, but today we're going to talk about, it's kind of a combo, we're going to talk about some of that weird stuff, but we're also going to talk about how we read our Bible. Because there's some, um, there's some ways that you should read your Bible, and there are some ways that you should, I, I should actually I should say, how you study your Bible. Always study the Bible, you're asking the Holy Spirit to reveal you stuff in the Bible. That is, that's my no-brainer statement at the beginning. If you're going to dig into the Bible, if you're going to try to get scholarly with the Bible, or if you're going to try to make a point with the Bible, there's a few things to think about when you're doing this. There's, there's kind of good ways and bad ways of doing this. Um, and what today we're going to talk about people's different theories on things, and we're going to kind of examine them to see how they're, how they're doing this study. Um, there's a word called exegesis. And exegesis means to pull out from. Um, so it's when you pull things out from the Bible. The purpose of exegesis, you might hear somebody say, oh, I heard a good sermon. It was a good exegesis on John 3. That means that person probably took John 3 and then did like a full-out study and tried to pull out from what the context of what it says. Um, maybe you haven't heard that before. But the purpose of exegesis is to explain, not to distort or conceal or to add to. It is to let the original writer speak clearly through the modern interpreter and not to make him say what he did not mean to say. And we do that a lot with a lot of Bible verses. Um, exegesis requires a little bit of studying. A lot of people will study the language of the verses. A lot of people will study the historical, the direct historical context of the verses. Other people like to bring in like the whole region. So maybe we're going to look at the Middle Eastern region's culture, how this could affect how we're reading this. And then some people like to, in their exegesis, look at what the fathers of the church from back in the day thought about some of these subjects. So that's, those are different, different methods people look at when they look at verses in the Bible, to study out these verses in the Bible. Um, for example, I didn't see anybody greet each other with a holy kiss this morning, even though our Bible says to do that. The reason we don't do that is because we realize that when people have done an exegesis study of that scripture, we know that it was contextual, right? So, you know, I don't see any ladies with coverings. So there's different things that we, we, already, we already do this. Like, we, we exegesis, we understand there's lots of things where we just look at what it says, then we have to look at what's going on around it, then we pull our meaning to it. 
Eisegesis happens a lot, and I can see this a lot in television preaching. Eisegesis is um, where you read into the text what you want it to say. So you're just you're looking into that text, and you're like, well, this works because of this. And you just make up the reason for why this works, or why this method works. A lot of people do that. So that's the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. We're going to talk about eisegesis a little later when we talk about some theories. Uh, Second Temple Judaism, we had a whole sermon on that a while ago. That's just that intertestamental time. Um, they call it Second Temple because the Second Temple, the, the Jerusalem Temple, was up again. It was the second time it was up again. Um, a lot of people say it's between Malachi and Matthew in the book. kind of timeline that fits out, I actually, Chronicles is actually the last book that was written for the Old Testament, which is kind of fun because it's, we put it way before just because of the subject matter. Anyway, uh, we talked about the Apocrypha before, and those are those extra books that were in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Bible that they were reading in Jesus' time. Um, some of the Catholics keep some of those books still. So if you read a Catholic Bible, you'll still see some of those books in the back of a Catholic Bible. Um, and then the other word that I'm going to introduce, is, you don't have to know it, but it's called uh, pseudepigrapha, which is a fun word to say. But pseudepigrapha, basically, we're going to refer to them as the Jewish writings between 5th century BCE to 1st century CE that happened in that intertestamental time. So these are books that are coming out during the days where the disciples are being taught when Jesus is born and before. So there's our vocab. Um, giants and unclean spirits. This is what we're tackling. The trail is in the Bible. Uh, we're going to let the verses tell their story. So we're gonna, this is how we're going to do our exegesis here. The trail is here. We're going to pick it up. We're going to let the verses tell their story. Then we're going to look at what the nation's writing is saying. So we're going to look at like what all the Jews were saying about these verse back when they're writing commentaries in Jesus' time. Um, we're going to look at regional context, which is Mesopotamia for the time, for more additional clues. And then hopefully we can kind of see the writer's intent. That way we're not just reading into this passage and saying, this is what they meant because I like this version. Um, so let's look at the, the passage that we're going to do this with. It's Genesis 6, 1 through 5. It's one of the weirdest passages in the Bible. A lot of people don't like to go here. Or they just kind of gloss over it. Um, when this is, so this is pre-flood. This is leading right into the flood. So Genesis 6 is where you get into Noah. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, and I highlighted that because we should, that should trigger something we learned about a couple weeks ago. The sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive. And they took them as wives, and they chose. They took as their wives, and he they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, so how do you read it? When we read it, it seems kind of fantastical. Um, kind of seems like it's just thrown in there. We know, that, uh, we know that the phrase sons of God is used for spiritual beings that are working with Yahweh. Uh, the Hebrew word for that is b'nei ha Elohim. We talked about that earlier. It is literally sons of God. Um, 
and the word for wives there, you had to look it up because sometimes the wife thing doesn't work. Uh, the word for wives is nasim, the Hebrew word nasim. It can actually mean women. It can mean concubines. It can mean a lot of things. They, they just translated it as wives, and that's okay. It doesn't really take from it. Um, and the nephilim is simply translated ha-nephilim. So there's no trickiness with that word. It is a title of something, and the Jews were quite fine with having that be the title of something. Um, there's nothing really tricky there. Um, so how I would read that, if we go back to it, the sons of God, I would take as spiritual beings. Um, they come into the daughters of man, and they have these children. And of these children, they are called mighty men and men of renown. So what that means, we'll have to see. Um, that's an interesting thing. Face of value, sons of God, angelic spiritual beings, leaving heaven to come have sex with women and have their own children, which is strange. Um, so there's a couple other views that take the supernatural out of this. Um, a couple of the views, the first view is called the Sethite view, and this does pertain to unclean spirits. We'll get there. Let's get in there. Um, the Sethite view is the passage is talking about the sons of Seth. So they're saying sons of God is sons of Seth. Seth was Adam's thirdborn, the one that replaced Abel. Um, the passage, they say that the passage is talking about the sons of Seth intermarrying with the daughters of Cain. And so the sons of God, they're trying to say, are like the holy ones of Seth's line marrying with the dirty ones of Cain's line. Um, they say that because Genesis 4.26 says that Seth, though most translations just put mankind there, began to call on the name of God. So because they say, because Seth began to call on the name of God, that he must be the sons of God in this reference. Uh, they say that Nephilim is the offspring of the forbidden combo of these lines, meaning the Canaan-Seth Canaan lines. Um, there are other responses that they say, well, look, it said they took wives, and Jesus makes a comment in the New Testament about angels not marrying in heaven. Um, but again, we can get around that. That's not a problem. The other view is divinized human rulers. So they think that back in the day, the Middle East, that whole area, they thought rulers were like gods. I mean, you got Pharaoh, who's supposed to be Horus, and there's other things like that in Babylonia. I mean, even in the time of like the exile, Nebuchadnezzar is still thinking he's, he's God. So the idea of these divinized kings, so they're saying these divinized kings are having children. And these children are what the Bible is talking about. What that has to do with the flood, I have no idea. But that's how they do it. They take the sons of the Most High in Psalm 82, 6, which, again, we talked about a couple weeks ago. They say that those sons, instead of being spiritual beings, those are just dead Jewish rulers. And they just read it back into Genesis 6 and say, well, these just must be dead rulers of something else. So... They note language where God refers to humans as his son, uh, which it is argued is parallel to ancient Near Eastern beliefs that kings were thought to be the offspring. Again, all these old kings that have think they're God and having divinity. Um, they also say that this passage is just in there to argue that evil marriages uh, condemned in the verse have to do with polygamy. Um, but again, there's problems with this view. So those are the two views that take the supernatural out of that passage. 
And that's how they, there, there are a number of people and a number of denominations that try to extract all supernatural out of your Bible. It's just kind of how it works. And they kind of like, nothing to see here. This is just a bunch of kings having kids. And again, this is the difference between eisegesis and exegesis. We'll get into that. Here are problems with the Sethite view. The Bible doesn't say at all that only Seth's children called on God. They're inferring. So in Genesis 4, they're just inferring that only Seth's kids called on God. doesn't say that. Um, it doesn't explain why these are men of mighty deeds. You know, if you have a broken, fallen line marrying with the good line, and now they're producing mighty men, that, it doesn't explain that. Uh, the women are never called daughters of, Ca- of Cain. They're called daughters of man. I'm pretty sure that if God intended it to be written, daughters of Cain, we can assume that it would be written daughters of Cain instead of daughters of man. Uh, There's no command that says that the two lines of men previously couldn't marry. There's nothing in the Bible that says that Cain's children and Abel's children couldn't get married. Uh, Nowhere in Scripture does it refer to the sons of Seth as the sons of God in any other place in the Bible. So what they're saying is this is just a one-off thing in that chapter. Which again, here's where we're getting into eisegesis, where I'm reading something into a passage without being able to look throughout the Bible or contextualize it. And again, Nassim does not just mean wife. The Bible uses it many times as concubines. Which in this view, in my view, it would kind of read concubines, but wives works too. Uh, Divinized King's view. Uh, they are saying that it's a, it's a passage against polygamy. Uh, Genesis 6 never says that these relationships are polygamous. You have to read, it, read into it again. Uh, ancient parallels restrict divine sonship language to kings. Basically gets into plurals and different language beings. We don't really go there. Uh, the broad idea of human divine kingship elsewhere in the Old Testament is not a coherent argument against the supernatural view of Genesis 6. It was God's original design for his human children to be servant rulers over earth under his authority as his representatives in the presence of his glory. That's what we talked about with Genesis. We were made to rule the we were made to live with God and subdue the earth and rule the earth. That is the Garden of Eden mandate. And uh, so that's just rough. There's another argument that says they try to take Nephilim and break it down into the Hebrew to try to make it say something that it's not. Um, they say that Nephilim just means fallen ones or those that fall upon. Um, so that what they would say is that the Adam, or I'm sorry, uh, Seth's and Cain's line, because they intermarried, they became fallen ones. They weren't pure like Seth's line. Um, and they think that that just means they're fallen ones, and so that would also take care of the supernatural for them. What's interesting, though, when you look at that word, back when they translated it, when the Jews actually translated for the Septuagint, back in like 400 BC, they know their Bible. This is their Bible. Like, this is their writings. And when they translate it to Greek, um, they translate Nephilim to Gigas, which anybody know in like Latin or, or Greek or anything like that a little bit. It's where you get like gigantic, giant. Like, that's the root word for those things. So they actually translate Nephilim into giant back with the Septuagint when they would read it. So it kind of breaks that whole word thing. Uh, there is a whole process. It was really boring, but it made sense. The whole process discussing the morphology of the word, uh, but this is a good this is a good sum up for the word. You can recall that the Old Testament tells us that the Jewish intellectuals were taken to Babylon, 
And during those 70 years, the Jews learned to speak Aramaic, which is where we get Aramaic passages for the New Testament and some of our Old Testament. Um, They later brought it back to Judah, and this is how Aramaic became the primary language in Judea by the time of Jesus. Uh, And this is Heiser's view, is that the Jewish scribes adopted an Aramaic noun, nephilia, which means giant in Aramaic. Uh, When that word is pluralized in Hebrew, you get nephilim, precisely what we see in Numbers 13.33. And this is the only explanation for the meaning of the word that accounts for all of the context and all of the details. So I feel like there's good arguments against the Sethite view. There's good arguments against this divinized king's view for this weird passage. And now we know that the other places where the Nephilim are talked at in the Bible, it, it fits the context of the Aramaic word for giant. All that to say, I think that that passage is supernatural. I don't think it's ordinary. I think that there's something there. There's something about these beings coming down against God's will, having these hybrid things and evil abounding on the earth. Enough so that it was so against God's created order that what is the next thing he does? Wipe out time. So, having said that, are there any other supernatural views about this incident in the Bible? Because now that we've looked at it, we've kind of looked at what people said against it, we would have to make a case by looking at the Bible and finding other context for this. And so let's look at Numbers 13.30. This is talking about when Joshua and Caleb had just went into the promised land. Uh, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we we are all well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go against those people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. I feel like we can take that in context and we can see that it's talking about giants. It's how we were always taught in Sunday school. I don't think we can explain that away. So here's the fun part. There is a part, 1 Peter 3, a lot of preachers stay away from, because it looks like Peter just took a bunch of different topics and he threw them into a blender and just ended up with like this little bit of a chapter. So let's look at that, because we can kind of add some clarity to that now in the context. So Peter is talking, oh, not, not this, the second Peter is the one, but we'll start with this one. Uh, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Spirits in prison, because they did not obey in the days of Noah. Okay, so there we got some, why are spirits in prison? What does this have to do with the days of Noah? While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt through the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Just want to point out, spirits in prison in the days of Noah, 
Jesus went and proclaimed to them. He did not preach. Some translations said preach. I don't know why Jesus would go and preach to these angels in a pit. But this says proclaimed, which makes more sense. Um, And then it immediately goes to Christ being at the right hand of God and having authority over everything. So that's one part where they talk about these spirits from the days of Noah who are now in prison. Here's the weird part, but this isn't actually that weird. So if you look at the title of this in your Bible, it'll say like, you know how they give headings to some of these chapters? This one actually says false teachers. And so I've always wondered why this was in there with false teachers for all of it, because it kind of goes all over the place. But Second Peter 2, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with their false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, and he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous from punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. So he's taking some of these false teachers who are going up, he's addressing, in this letter, he's addressing some false teachers They are abounding in sensuality, and they are abounding in despising authority. What does it seem like the sins of the angels in Genesis 6 were? They left God's authority, and they came down to the earth, and they indulged in sensuality. And he even references, that's why he references these in this passage. He talks about the ancient world, after he references these, going right into Noah, and then he goes into Sodom and Gomorrah, also in Sodom and Gomorrah, People remember the story where the, the angels go in and they're, they're hanging out with Lot and people know that the angels are at Lot's house and now these people want to have sex with these people, the, the angels that just came to Lot's house. Again, here's an instance of like humans and angels, the, the sexual forbiddenness. Um, just interesting stuff. It's just, yeah, it's just right there. So he's, he's talking about that. Now, He's talking about this in the term of false teachers, too, and that's, that's part of our next part um, that we're going to get into. But there's one. So there's Second Peter that talks directly about this. Can you think of any other place in the Bible where angels sin? Because I've looked. There's nothing prior to this that we can see in the Bible where it talks about angels sinning, other than if you take a supernatural view of Genesis 6. Again, here's Jude who decides to make some comments again on false teachers. What's he going to bring up? He's going to bring up this whole thing again. Um, Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed from long ago, 
who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So there's the, their sensuality and the denying of authority. And so that automatically brings to mind this. Now I want you to remind you, although you, were once, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness and until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example of undergoing a punishment for eternal fire. It's linking it all again. And so that's why, like, some people, when they, they used to get this in the New Testament, they're just like, we're just going to skip this. I don't know that gloomy darkness. And then Peter goes and uses the word Tartarus, which we'll get to later. Uh, but it goes on, it talks about the false teachers, and it talks about, um, it actually starts talking about Michael contending with the devil, talking about how these false teachers are like reefs in your church's sea. They're going to shipwreck people. Um, we're just going to move on with that. Um, they actually, later on, he, right in Jude, he also talks about Enoch a little bit, which is going to become important here in a bit. It was also about those, these, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all of those to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against. These are the grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. He is quoting Enoch. Where is he quoting Enoch from? That's the mystery. Because that quote's not in the Bible. We'll get to that. What are these pointing to? Second uh, Peter has a context of false teachers spreading sensuality in the sinning angels. He speaks in chronological order, starting with sinning angels jumping right into the flood, then teaching lust and sensuality is targeted in that passage. Ends with a judgment statement about those who follow their lust and defy order. Sounds like the sons of God of Genesis 6 who lusted after women and defied the created order of Yahweh. Jude, the again, the context is false teachers, angels who did not keep to their domain but left their proper place, eternal bonds and deep gloom for the judgment day, sexual immorality, and then again they mention Sodom and Gomorrah again. Uh, they're talking about the Genesis 6 event. Nothing else fits for multiple reasons. and We've talked about some of those reasons. It was a supernatural event. They are, talking, uh, they are also talking about Tartarus, angels in a pit, Enoch's prophecy. Where is all of this coming from? And the answer is a lot of this is coming from Second Temple books. So they're the part of that apocrypha, or this, the pseudepigrapha that I was talking about earlier. We're going to talk a little bit about the first book of Enoch. Here is the disclaimer so that no one messes this up for me. I do not believe that this book is equivalent to Scripture. It's not in there. There's probably reasons it's not in there. But just because something's not in Scripture doesn't mean that it can't be helpful or informative. If I were to help someone find Christ, I would hand them a Bible. If they were of certain mindset, I'd probably hand them a case for Christ by Strobel. Strobel has a good book. It's not the Bible, but there's stuff to learn from that book. Does that make sense? 
all these Jewish guys, all the disciples, most of them were reading these books. So when Jude quotes from the book of Enoch, that's where it's coming from. Now, I want to distinguish. There's a first book of Enoch. This came from about 300 to 200 BC. Then there's two other books of Enoch that come very later. Kind of crazy. Kind of crazy. Like it doesn't fit the, the theme of this at all. Anyway, it's a book in the, the Pseudepigrapha. Enoch contains unique material on the origins of demons in the Nephilim, why some angels fell from heaven, an explanation of why the Genesis flood was morally necessary, and a prophetic exposition of the thousand-year reign of the Messiah. After Christianity started spreading, uh, a lot of the Jews, about 300 AD, started cutting off Enoch, Enoch from any other books. Because when you look in Enoch, you get a lot of uh, you get a lot of Jesus prophecies that you could pretty much say, okay, that kind of fits Jesus. So they kind of that's one of the reasons they did away with it. Um, the older sections, mainly in the Book of the Watchers, of the text are estimated to date from 300 to 200 BC, uh, found during Aramaic fragments in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So before they thought it was just maybe an Ethiopian thing. Um, but then when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they, oh, here's the Aramaic stuff that all, this is the stuff that Jude was quoting from, Peter was quoting from. So, I just want to look at a few sections from the Watchers section. These sections display how the Jews are reading the subject in the time of Jesus. The book fleshes out the story of Genesis 1 through 5 from a Jewish perspective, and it is in direct contrast to the Mesopotamian versions of the same story. This is a book being quoted, this is the book being quoted by Peter and Jude. There's some other places in the New Testament where Enoch is brought up. So, first Enoch six, kind of just read through this together. This is the uh, this is the Enochian version of that of Genesis six. And when the sons of men had multiplied in those days, beautiful and comely daughters were born to them. And the watchers, the sons of heaven, saw them and desired them. And they said to one another, "Come, let us choose for ourselves wives from the daughters of men, and let us beget for ourselves children." And Shemahazah, their chief, said to them. I fear that you will not want to do this deed, and I alone am going to be guilty of this great sin. And they answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath and let us all bind one another with a curse, that none of us turn back from the council, from this council until we fulfill it and do this deed. And they all swore together and bound one another in a curse. And they were, all of them, 200 who descended in the days of Jared onto the peak of Mount Hermon. And they called the mountain Hermon because they swore and bound one another with a curse upon it. Mount Hermon is a very important place in the New Testament. We're going to talk about it next week. It's an interesting place where Jesus does some very specific things in his ministry. Enoch 7. These and the other things with them, these and the others with them, took for themselves wives from among them, such as they chose. And they began to go into them and to defile themselves through them. And they started to teach sorcery and charms and to reveal to them the cutting of roots and plants. The cutting of roots and plants is actually pharma something like the Greek word pharmacology, for pharmacology, and it actually has to do with drug use. So it's talking about how the angels are now teaching humans sorcery and charms and drug use. Um, and they conceived from them and bore to them great giants. The giants begat Nephilim, and to the Nephilim were born the Iliad, and they were growing in accordance with their greatness. And they were devouring the labor of all men, all the sons of men, and men were not able to supply them. And the giants began to kill men and to devour them, and they began to sin against the birds and the beasts, the creeping things and the fish, and to devour one another's flesh, and they drank the blood. 
Which Jews are not supposed to be having any, any blood drinking. Uh, and then the earth brought accusation against the lawless ones. And then this is a fun, okay, so here's where we get, here's where we get to where Jude and Peter are bringing in false teachers. This is why they're throwing this stuff in the context. So in the book of Enoch, it gives a list of the different ones that came down and transgressed. And then it tells what they taught humans, what they were teaching humans. These bad, they're bad teachers, they're teaching them bad stuff. Azazel taught men to make swords of iron and weapons and shields and breastplates. Every instrument of war, he showed them the metals of the earth and how they could work gold to fashion it suitably and concerning silver to fashion it for bracelets and ornaments for women. And he showed them concerning antimony and eye paint, makeup, and all the manner of precious stones and dyes. And the sons of men made for themselves and for their daughters, and they, trans- and they transgressed and led astray the holy ones. So there it's talking about uh, centrally presenting yourself through the use of makeup and jewelry. And where do we get that stuff again? Paul starts talking about that in the New Testament directly, the makeup and the, the jewelry and that stuff. So... Um, not saying don't wear makeup and jewelry. That's not what I'm saying. Um, just saying that they that Paul talks about this very thing, and when he brings this up, and then he also says, you know, concerning the angels. So Paul's still thinking from this stuff too. Uh, and there was much godlessness among the earth, and they made their ways desolate. Shemaza taught spells and the cutting of roots. Hermani taught sorcery for the loosing of spells and magic and skill. Maraquel taught the signs of the lightning flashes. You can go through all of this. It starts going into astrology and different mysteries and all the divination stuff that they were bringing these secrets to the humans to teach them these things. And then as the men were perishing, the cry went up to heaven. So the Jewish belief during Second Temple, and you can read this in a couple different summary books, but the Jewish, the, they believe that when they, they came down and did this, when they taught humans this stuff, sin just went rampant. Basically, humans already knew how to sin, but now we're giving them like sin on speed because we're giving them all this crazy stuff. And so that's why they're referred to bad teachers. That's why Jude and Peter are talking about these people that defy authority, sensual, they're coming down, and they're false teachers. They, make, they, they compare some of the false teachers of their time in those passages to these false teachers here. Does that make sense? So the state of the world, you end up with bloodshed of all living things. This is going against God's created order. Uh, the introduction of warcraft, witchcraft, sorceries, etc. And everybody knows that this has got to end. Uh, the rest of the Enoch story, I'll summarize real quick so we can move. God is listening and watching. God sends a message to Noah to withdraw and commence boat building plan. Uh, then God sends archangels to round up the fallen watchers. They do. Uh, in the story, the archangels go down and they subdue. I think the, the number in Enoch is that there's 200 of them that came down and did all this. Um, and then it says that they sent them to the pit of gloom, the pit of darkness, which is what they're referring to in all the Old Testament, the New Testament passages we just talked about. Um, now, why did, why did Peter call it Tartarus? Um, Tartarus just means the pit or the abyss. We're going pretty far here, so I'm just going to skip this. This just talks about the pit, just describes the pit or the abyss. Um, but we need to get moving. Why use the word Tartarus? Well, Peter is using the word Tartarus for a specific reason. Um, in Greek mythology, Tartarus is the deep abyss that is used as a dungeon of torment and suffering for the wicked and as the prison for the titans. 
Tartarus is the place where, according to Plato's Gorgias, souls are judged after death and where the wicked receive divine punishment. Now, he's sending titans there in Greek mythology. Um, there are two generations of titans. There's the first gen that were considered divine beings, and then the second gen were divine slash human beings, so hybrids. Sound familiar? They're all getting rounded up and sent into this pit in Greek mythology. So this story is like one that humans from around the world seem to have. What is different, though, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, what is different, we'll we'll get there. Back to Enoch. Uh, Enoch refers to them as bastard spirits. And why are they bastard spirits? Because they don't have a true father. This was not part of God's design. These are spirits that were not, they were against the created order. Um, And this guy sums up the rest of Enoch really quickly. Um, But basically, uh, the second section introduces Enoch, who is not mentioned in the first. He is situated in heaven among the watchers and the holy ones. He's sitting with the council. The holy ones are the council. Uh, there, are clear course, there are clear correspondences between this description of Enoch and the one that we find in Genesis 5, 18 through 24. Enoch was sent to the watchers on earth to pronounce judgment because their sexual union with the women had corrupted the earth. The watchers were seized with fear and asked Enoch to write a petition on their behalf and bring it back to the supreme God. Um, this is coming from a secular view on this, but it was a good summary. Enoch went to the waters of Dan, southwest of Hermon, and he fell asleep and saw a dream vision. In the vision, he was brought back to heaven, to the temple of the supreme God. God recalled for him that the watcher incident once more in the judgment he had decided. So God's like, this judgment is decided. They're wicked. They went against the order. They're going in the pit. Here new information is added. And from the dead bodies of the giants, which are the children, those spirits, those bastard spirits that were not meant, from the dead bodies of the giants, the evil spirits would arise. They would haunt mankind until the final judgment. Enoch was then sent back to the watchers with the message that ends the story, you're not going to have peace. God made his decision. Gloomy pit for you. And so here we have the Jewish belief on where those uh, spirits, the unclean spirits, come from. So they say that they are the spirits of these giants that were never supposed to be, and God left them on earth, and God is going to consume them in the fire when he consumes all the rest of these rebellious spiritual beings and the rebellious humans that end up joining them, which Revelation talks about, and Daniel and Isaiah talk about that joining of all these spiritual beings and destruction. Um, So that is their view on where unclean spirits come from. Part of the reason they're called unclean spirits is not just because they're evil. They refer to them as unclean spirits because they are mixed. And in Judaism, you've got to be very careful. You're not supposed to mix there are things you don't mix. And if they are mixed, they are not kosher. There's a, and that's it's why they call them mixed spirits or unclean spirits, depending on translations. That's where they come from. So that was a lot of digging. That's the, what I got on the origin of those Old Testament baddies that we hear about and that Jesus is dealing with. Also makes sense why they have no problem getting rid of them as compared to like, coming against a principality or a power in the Bible. Like you see Jesus, Jesus has no issue with any of them, but you see, you see them, the, the disciples are just out there just casting these unclean spirits out left and right. But yet there are other times where like you're contending against the principalities and power. So they are two different things it looks like. And again, just talked about bastard. They're not spirits of God's will. They have no real father and they're unclean because they come from the mixing of things not in God's created order. 
Uh, Second Temple Jews believe that they were the leftover spirits that were made to... Again, they get that from Enoch. Um, Side note, here's where we get ancient aliens. All right. Until very recently, the Mesopotamian backstory to Genesis 6, 1 through 4 was unknown to but a handful of scholars. There wasn't a lot of stuff we knew about it. Uh, This means that what follows will not be found in the writings of any modern denominational founders, any commentaries. Some of this is like 12 years recent that they found some of this stuff. Um, I think it's like, this is like secure. We already know what the Greeks thought about this whole incident. We we figured out that the Greeks kind of have a similar incident. And then we find out that Mesopotamia really did have a similar incident to the point that they even called them similar things. Uh, Mesopotamia, if you guys go back to 7th grade in social studies, you have the Arabian Peninsula, you have the Tigris and the Euphrates, you have that country there, that area between the rivers that's really great for building things and living, and that's where Mesopotamia came from. You have many different civilizations. These civilizations interact with the Old Testament the whole time because they're neighbors. They're right there. Abraham comes out of the civilization. So the father of all of us comes from Ur. He was Part of that culture. Um, they're actually beginning to think, based on timelines with the Bible, if you ever heard of Hammurabi, the Code of Hammurabi, they believe that probably Abraham and Hammurabi were alive about the same time. So that was kind of fun. Um, in recent past archaeological digs, we have discovered more of the story about some of these figures that sound a lot like the Genesis 6 figures called the Apkalu. Super quick summary. The Apkalu were semi-divine beings who came and instructed humans with many forms of knowledge and technology. Now do you see where ancient alien people try to tag on to this? Um, They give knowledge to mankind and it makes Marduk upset. Marduk is their higher god. So Marduk decides that he cannot go on like this and he sends a great flood and removes the Apkalu. They are sent to Apsu or the great earth. Apsu, the great earth, is this pit pit in the earth. So, okay, very similar after the Great Flood, only mixed-race Apkalu are mentioned. They are mentioned as two-thirds Apkalu, meaning now they're mixed with humans. Um, among these mentioned is the legendary Gilgamesh. If you ever remember anything from history class, they talk about the deeds of Gilgamesh. Um, he was two-thirds divined, is how he was described. And he supposedly brought back all the wiped-out knowledge. If you read the Gilgamesh story, he brings back all this knowledge that was supposedly lost from before the Flood. It's one of his great deeds for the Babylonians as he brought us back all this magic, all this bad stuff that we think is bad. Um, they're like, but he's a hero because he brought that back for us. Other cuneiform tablets point to him as being a giant, and they just refer to Gilgamesh as a giant, flat out. Uh, recent fragments, we've found a pillar. Uh, there was a pillar in a temple where he is described as master of, a, master of the Apkalu, so directly lining him up with this idea of the divine human hybrid thing. Anyway, fragments from the Book of Giants, which is a book they found with the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a Jewish book. and The Jewish book uh, directly names him as a Nephilim. Uh, they found these recently. These are called Apkalu figures, but they're specifically called Watchers. The reason why the Watchers thing is fun is because when Daniel refers to these beings in the Book of Daniel... Daniel refers to them as watchers. Um, But they found these things, and what they would do is the Mesopotamians would take these creatures, they they revered them so much, they'd make figurines of them and put them on like the foundations of their home to give them protection. 
And so those are their depictions of those rebellious spirits. Okay, so what? All the elements of Genesis 1, 6, 1 through 4 can be accounted for in Mesopotamian material relating to precisely the same context, the Great Flood. Doesn't mean the Bible copied, and we'll talk about that. These parallels were preserved in the Second Temple Jewish book known as First Enoch. The elements in the First Enoch story of the sin of the watchers that are not found directly in Genesis 1 through 4 may nevertheless be entirely consistent with Genesis 1 through 4. New Testament writers like Peter and Jude should not be criticized for their attention to First Enoch in their own theological thinking. Genesis 6, 1 through 5 is clearly talking about spiritual beings, not men. The Mesopotamians, Egyptians, and even Greeks believed in a version of this type of story. So all of this points to the Bible copying things. That's the new atheist thing. So all this information comes out, and now they're like, oh, the Jews, they just copied everything around them. Not. It's absolutely not a copy. What this shows is how connected mankind was before Babel. And what this shows is that the Bible alone has its own twist to this. The Bible alone treats the spiritual incursion as wrong. In every other religion, it is, it's a good thing. It moved humanity along. We needed it. They're revered, revered beings. This is not in Yahweh's design. That's the Jewish take from the start. Um, it perverts his end goal. It causes more trouble for humans. And then he has to deal with this trouble it makes for humans. In this story, there... This story is there as a repudiation for what the other worldviews believed. So some people believe that they ended up, the reason they, they did Enoch was to make it clear to people in history that we are, not, we are not partakers in this divine beings coming and doing this stuff. A lot of your ancient alien shows are all about these people that come down and teach humans all this stuff, but they're kind of wicked people that come and teach them and they use humans. And uh, a lot of people get swept up into this. And it starts leading them into other... It's very new agey. It ends up getting very, very new agey. And uh, my point is this. I don't know what you want to believe about the unclean spirits. The Jews definitely had ideas based on Genesis, what they thought they were. Whether we think that all of them are like that or not, I don't know. We're not completely through this whole section thing. But um, the Bible has answers for this weird thing. And it's not aliens or higher powers reaching out to humanity to help us and move us along and to get us caught up into bad thinking where we all become gods and do all the new agey stuff. I know that's a very generic answers, answer, but um, it's kind of the point of this is, is there's a number of people, 16 seasons, the show has 16 seasons. People are eating this stuff up. The Bible has an answer. This is bad. This stuff was bad. It was bad for humans. Um, just, the, just it's, there's a contrast. Mesopotamians, humans were created as playthings for the gods. They were created to work the earth for the gods as slaves. And so the Apkalu were sent to teach them to make them better slaves. But then the Apkalu liked the humans and taught them all this stuff. We have a religion that we are not made as slaves for God. We were made to partner with God from the very beginning of Genesis, it says that we were made to co-labor with God, spreading Eden to the rest of the world. It was a family endeavor. God the Father and us working together to subdue and take the kingdom to earth, basically. Put heaven on earth. And uh, that's very, very different than what the Greeks have to say, what all the Mesopotamians have to say, and what other religions say. So 
just saying that the Bible is copying things, this is the apologetics we need to take on those people. It's not. Yahweh is different. He's different than Marduk. He's different than all of that stuff. And uh, final thoughts. We've covered the powers and principalities over regions. We have unclean spirits bothering humanity. We're going to cover at some point Satan and his angels. We have Jesus, the Messiah, the unique son of the Most High, and he is a conqueror. Never forget that. He is above all of that stuff. Uh, Next week, we're going to dive into the New Testament to see all the places in Scripture in the New Testament where this is alluded to and how Jesus is interacting with all of this. So there are things that Jesus will do and uh, places he goes that have direct, are directly, he's confronting some of this stuff and we miss it because we're not really, we didn't know some of the locations and some of the thoughts. So he's actually, he, it, it's cool stuff. No longer aliens, rebellious spirit beings. So if you see it, you see that guy, he's like aliens for everything. Rebellious spirit beings, that's where I want to conclude. So Lord, we thank you that you are a God with a plan, that you are a God that gets back to the plan regardless of whatever rebellions arise. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God that wants to co-labor with us, that you want to spread your kingdom here on earth and that we'll see heaven on earth. Since the beginning, that's what you've intended. And through it all, you work it all. And now we're back. We're in the right position with you through Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. We thank you that we have authority over all of these things, regardless of their origins, regardless of where they came from or what they claim. You are the highest, Lord. And we're so thankful that we have you, that 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 highest spirit lives in us. And Lord, we're very grateful for that. We love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us, for the restoration, Lord. And Jesus, we just thank you. And in your name we pray, pray, Lord. Amen.